Well, good morning, and welcome to The Rock. We're glad you're here, and happy Mother's Day. Uh, ben said this earlier that his mom was the best, and I just was to inform you all that. Actually, my mom is the best, so I wanted to <laughs> wish that. Uh, it's okay, you didn't know that, but now you know. So, um, no, happy Mother's Day. Mothers are a blessing, and uh, very thankful for them. So, yeah, we have been going through a series on heaven, and this is week four uh, of six, and it's been great. So if you've been here or if you're new, I just wanted to recap where we've been. So week one uh, was a sort of big picture overview of heaven, laying the groundwork for what we would talk about the next five weeks. And Tri started us off with this question. He asked, are you excited for heaven? That's a great question. Because we all know what the obvious answer should be to that. But I think in reality, our perspective of heaven can be influenced by a lot of things. And I also think it's worth noting that there's an enemy who wants to distort our perspective and leverage sort of different misconceptions to discourage us or distract us from what it will really be like. And so I think, and I also think he's really good at that. So we want to be people whose opinions and thoughts of heaven are really rooted and, and founded upon scripture, which is a solid foundation. Um, and, and not just by the culture that's around us. For me, as I you know, pondered that, again, most of my life I've known what the, the answer should be to that question. But also if I'm being honest with myself, for a lot of my life the, the answer to that question would be no. I'm not really that excited. Or at least, you know, not really that excited. I, you know, I grew up going to church and I, I knew I should want that above all else, but the reality is I also kind of liked it here. You know, I didn't want to leave Earth. I, and I, was, I, I thought to myself, and I wasn't necessarily bold enough to say this out loud, but I thought, you know, I'll be okay with heaven as long as I can first live a good life or a full life. You know, get married, have kids, have a family, grow old, see a lot of the world. There's a lot of places around I want to go see. Then I'll be ready to leave this place and go on to whatever God has in store for me. That was my perspective. Which, to be clear, those are all good things. But you see, what that reveals is that my perspective about heaven has often been that death for the believer would lead to less than what life looks like now. Or that what's to come would be somehow like diminished in some form or fashion. I certainly didn't view it like Paul does in Philippians 1.21 where he sums this up so well. This is my favorite verse. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's not desiring death before it's his time. But what he's acknowledging is that simply what's to come, for the believer anyway, is better in every way. It's gain. But often my perspective is that these years on earth now would be the peak of our existence. And, you know, someday when we die, I guess we become these disembodied spirits that are carried off to the clouds somewhere, and we enter into some sort of eternal church service where the only instrument allowed on the worship team is a harp. <laughs> and I like church. I do. I loved the worship this morning especially. But you know what? I also enjoy hanging out at home. I enjoy playing games with friends. 
I enjoy going on walks and riding my bike and listening to music. I enjoy drinking coffee on the back deck while a little dog sits in my lap. You know, I, I like living life on earth. I enjoy that. And for most of my life, I didn't really grasp the weight, and I'm still processing and learning, but I didn't grasp the weight of what God has planned for the redemption of the universe he created. And that's why it's such a good question to start out with, because our answer, <clears throat> our honest answer to that question can be really revealing about what we think and what we believe. And so for me, again, as I continue to process this and learn on this, meditating on the hope of heaven has become an anchor through what has been the most difficult season in my life. So that was week one. Week two, we started to define what we mean when we say heaven. Heaven, by definition, is simply where God dwells. And we differentiated out, you know, that currently when believers die, they go to be in the presence of the Lord, but that's somewhere else. And so we talked about how that's not the ultimate picture of heaven, that's just a layover. So that's why we call it the present or intermediate heaven. But we know that we're still awaiting Jesus to return and to establish the ultimate realization of heaven, which is the reunion of heaven and earth here on a renewed creation, the restoration of Eden, which is what we're talking about this morning. That's the ultimate picture. So then last week we looked at, started to look at that, and we started with the resurrection of the body. See, unless Jesus returns beforehand, your body will die one day. But we saw that if you're a believer in Christ, that you will not remain dead. It will be resurrected one day, your actual physical body. It's like Job says, that even though my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We were made both physical and spiritual. And the salvation we have through Jesus Christ is comprehensive to save our souls and one day bring our very bodies back to life. That is so hopeful. And that leads us right into this week, the redemption of earth and the renewal of creation. See, resurrected physical bodies, they have to dwell somewhere. And that, what we'll see today, is that's going to be back here on a resurrected physical earth, a new earth in Christ that's our eternity. And I want to start off by re-emphasizing a point from last week that is really integral to all of this. And that is this. Without resurrection, the enemy will have gained a victory against God. See, the place where God created us to dwell in the beginning is earth. So if creation, or literally this earth, and the universe that it's in is not resurrected, then the implication is that sin would have damaged it beyond repair. That it was so far gone that there was nothing God could do about it. That he just had to scrap it and move on to plan B. But that's not how God operates. You see, he is never defeated. He is constantly redeeming and restoring and renewing. Randy Alcorn calls Jesus the ultimate salvage artist. I love that. It's so true. And he has not given up on his original plan to partner with us in ruling over his good creation. So a new earth, which we'll talk about today, is first and foremost earth. And I'm not like a Greek scholar or anything, but that word uh, that's translated new, 
it's, it indicates that the earth won't necessarily be new as opposed to old. Like at one point you had an old car and then you bought a new car. But what it means more is that it's new in quality and superior in character. So you had this old broken down car, but then you have the best mechanic the world has ever seen come and refresh all the old broken down parts and make it to where it can run forever. And that analogy breaks down a little bit because we know that cars will eventually break down. But what we'll see is that the, the very nature of these things is restored back to how they were. And because it's given by the source of eternal life, it can live for eternity. So we'll get there. But first, I think it's helpful to back up a bit and start at the very beginning. So in Genesis 1, 1, it says this simply, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens above, or the universe, and the earth below. So God could have gone about this whole thing any way that he wanted, but for some reason he chose to do it this way. And over the next several days of creation, as God continues to fill the heavens with these magnificent celestial bodies and the earth with vegetation of all kinds, useful for eating and some just for admiring because they're beautiful, and uh, animals of all sorts up in the, the skies and down in the water and on the land, Um, eventually he makes us, he makes humans in his image to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over all of this creation with him. You know what he repeatedly says about this creation? He says it's good. It's good. You may have heard this phrase, this world is not my home, or not not of this world. And there, there is some truth to that. So I think it's helpful to make a differentiation here between Planet Earth, you know, this physical rock on which we're dwelling, uh, and we just read about in the creation narrative, and the world, which is more the evil, corrupt human systems which have ruled upon this planet since the fall. And certainly we are called not to be conformed to those patterns and systems um, which have been corrupted by sin. But our longing for Earth, our enjoyment of its beauty and its wonder, That is an echo of life in Eden and ultimately a foretaste of what's to come. So it may sound more spiritual to say things like, well, I don't care about earth. I just want to be in the presence of the Lord. And again, certainly to be in the presence of the Lord will be the pinnacle of all of this. And that's what we're going to look at more next week. But for today, I want us to just step back and realize God created earth. He created the universe full of wonder. He declared it good. See, he likes matter. He likes physical things. That was his idea. That that wasn't our idea. Sin did not generate physicality. God did. So we can begin to view these things in their proper context as flowing out of his creative goodness. That's the filter through which we process our thinking. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens or the universe, he created earth and it was good. He created humans to dwell on earth with him and and to walk with him in his presence. But it was our rebellion, which we read in Genesis 3, that led to the curse of sin, which created this division between us and our creator where we were cast out of his presence. But the curse 
again, as we see, did not stop there. We see it also falls upon creation, on earth and even into the heavens. See, sin has affected the entire universe. This whole thing is in need of renewal. As mankind goes, so goes creation. But that works both ways. So for now, that's where we are at today. We're living in this in-between period from Genesis 3 all the way to what we see will happen in Revelation 21. And we stand at a little bit of a helpful vantage point because we know that Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, he has created the way back to dwell with God once again. That future is paid for. It's secure. So what does this renewal look like? Well, we we see a lot of scripture uh, throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament talking about and pointing toward this restored creation. So we're going to look at some of those. And I want to start in Revelation 21 because that's our most detailed look at uh, the new creation. And so we can begin to make observations and get excited about what some of this is going to look like. If you can read the slide, uh, great, or you can pull out your Bible, turn it on, whatever. Um, But I'll read just the first seven verses, and then we'll make a few observations. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So in the beginning, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And what do we see here? Well, John is having this vision from God, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So original creation is made new. But again, what does that mean exactly? Well, some of the language used here, Paul uses similarly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And that's why it's helpful to look at this after last week, looking at the resurrection of the body. Um, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, same, same word there translated. So you start to see the correlation here. You are a new creation in Christ, but you're still you. But the old has gone. The, the old nature, the old way that you were has now passed away, and the new has come. And in fact, now that you are a new creation, you're more you than you've ever been before. 
See, when I was saved at five years old, I was standing in my parents' bathroom. I became a new creation through the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment. But I didn't all of a sudden become unrecognizable. My mom didn't all of a sudden shriek and say, who are you and what have you done with Luke? Get out of here, you trespassing little kid. Not that she would have responded that way to a five-year-old, but, but you get my point. Continuity of identity is really important when we're talking about the new creation. So when you say a new heaven or there's new heavens, that's the, still the universe, but it's made new. It's purged of the old way in which it was corrupted and, and damaged by sin. And same way uh, with the earth. A new earth is still earth. Uh, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3, 6, when he talks about, it sounds like the earth is going to be destroyed. But what he compares it to is that it's just like the earth was destroyed by the flood. And what do we know about the flood? Well, the earth was still around, but it was refined, it was purged. And he compares that. He says that just like the flood purged the earth, that one day it will be purged again of all corruption and death and everything that sin has touched, only this time for good, because it's going to be purified by fire. So a new earth will be both familiar and new, just like our resurrection body. It will retain the beauty that we love, but elevate it to an entirely new level once the curse of sin is removed. And that's so hopeful. And at the end of the verse here, he says, and the sea was no more. And I just want to make a quick note on that. For me, that trips me up a little bit. I say, wait, if part of God's good creation was, was water, big bodies of water, does that mean there won't be any more sea? Well, I guess we don't know for sure. Does it mean there's no more ocean? It could. But upon digging more into this, what might be more likely is that uh, the sea was often associated with death. Actually, when you read this in context, a few verses earlier in Revelation 20, 13, it, it specifically mentions the sea giving up its dead. See, back um, in those days, going out on the ocean was just these chaos waters, and you would almost certainly die. So someone reading this at the time would have likely been very comforted by the fact that there's no more sea associated with death. And we know that there's water on the new earth, so what that looks like, I guess we'll, we'll see. But I, I do think that big bodies of water um, are a part of God's good creation. And so uh, just a quick note on that. As things move on into verse 2, he says this, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Again, John's having this vision from God about the end of times, and what does he see? Well, he doesn't see us, you know, rising up and escaping earth and going off to some other place to, to dwell forever. No, what he sees is heaven is coming down here. That's the picture it's coming down and transforming earth. It's uniting with it. This division between God's space and, and our space is no longer there. And those two things are united once again, as they were always intended to be. So this world as it is now is not our home. But one day we see that it will be. In verse 3, God says this. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And that language is used all throughout the Bible. 
So in Leviticus 26.12, is just one example of um, a few of them, but it says this. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. See, our relationship with God is healed on the new earth. What was lost in the garden through our rebellion is restored. So many things throughout Scripture uh, point to eternity with God. And what we see, and uh, another thing that we see here is that the year of Jubilee, back in Leviticus 25.10, points to this as well. God says this. This is instruction about how to live in the promised land. And he says this, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. See, land is a big deal in the Bible. And all of this, this old instruction points us toward this hopeful future where the land is corrupted by sin, it's taken, is restored, and God makes his dwelling place with us again. See, the return of Jesus is the ultimate year of Jubilee. Going on to verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love this verse. See, the world is broken. Things are not how they were meant to be. Death is a thief. And it has stolen so much. And the former things have led to so much pain and sorrow. But one day we see that this will all be healed. It will be restored. And now this is a life-transforming, living hope. It's worth noting here that John is writing this as a letter to some of the early churches who are undergoing immense persecution, things that we probably can't even fathom. They are desperately in need of hope. This is that hope. They could endure the things they were going through with peace in their heart because they knew that one day that this would all be made new, that things as they were now would not be how it always is. Isaiah 65, 17 also references these former things. And this is what he says about them. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, I don't think this means our our memories are just completely purged and we don't remember anything, because memories are a core part of who we are. But some of you may have some really traumatic memories. Maybe you've gone through some really hard things in a particular location. Or maybe there's a a place on earth that you really don't want to go back to. It just stirs up too much pain. So the idea of a new earth dwelling here again maybe doesn't actually sound that appealing. But what we see here is a picture of hope, of healing. So maybe the trauma that some of you have endured no longer has has a hold on you. See, there will be no square inch of the new earth that's off limits. Our minds will be at peace to explore and enjoy every single area of creation. John continues, and when he gets to verse 6, he 
He says this, he says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now this John writing this is also the same John who wrote the gospel of John. And in John 4, uh, 13 to 14, Jesus is having this conversation with uh, this woman at, at the well. And he says this, he says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, our hope is that the deepest longings of our soul will one day be satisfied. Jesus is saying, this is that satisfaction. This is that water. And what we read here is that this is that water. And we will literally drink of it and be satisfied forever in him. So John continues on in Revelation 21 and into 22. And it's a lot. If you can follow along on the slide. You might need to follow along on your Bible for this one. Um, but again, I'll, I'll read it, and I, uh, there's a lot, but I just want to make a few observations, because after these first sev- uh, few verses, he goes into a lot of detail on the city, which is a little interesting. So this is what he says. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there, there's a lot there, but I just want to, again, make a few observations about what we gather from all that. First, the fact that it's a city coming down is actually a little bit surprising. See, we were originally created to live in a garden. And the first city we see is built by Cain after he murders his brother Abel. He, he actually builds it out of fear because he is afraid of retribution. He wants to protect himself. See, a defining characteristic of cities in the Bible is that they have a wall around them to protect from human violence and wild beasts and um, you know, other dangers which are ultimately a result of sin. And what we see here is that cities actually magnify what's going on in the human heart. They scale things up. So you see good things come out of it, like developments in music and metallurgy, but also those things are coupled with this amplification of evil. So, and I'm not just here to rag on the city this, this, um, at all, because cities are really good too. But the fact is that so much focus you know, on the details of the city should cause us to question, why, why is all of that being discussed? In such a short section, really, there's a lot of detail about a city. And I think there's one thing that we should remember. See, God is a redeemer. The return of Jesus is not the eradication of human history. He's not just going to come back and take us back to day one. But if you picture the history of humanity as, as a timeline, well, the return of Jesus is like a milestone on that timeline. And it's a very important milestone, obviously. But it's a milestone. And there's continuity, and it will continue on forever. And so what we see here is that the city is just one example of, of many things that we see where at one point they were meant for evil. But God turns them into a force for good. It's kind of like the nail holes that are in Jesus' hands. See, they're a sign of something that was really wrong actual pain, and they're a scar. But what we see in the risen Jesus is that he still has them. He doesn't erase them. He incorporates them into and heals and transforms them into the resurrected world. It's because that's how he operates. And going back to, you know, all the focus on the details of the city, I want to look at the materials being used. For one, these are some of the hardest substances on earth. So this is a very physical city that we're talking about. It's not just analogy or metaphor. And it's huge. Seriously, you should, these dimensions are massive. You should actually do the math on it uh, after this sometime. And whether or not they're literal, I think what's being communicated here is that there is enough room for everyone. It's like that verse Jackie read at the very beginning. There will be enough rooms for all of us. He's going to prepare. He's prepared that place for us. The population of heaven will be big. And while we're here, we should try to make it bigger. And the thing about it is that what we see in the city, full of good, renewed, resurrected people, is that no longer is evil going to be amplified in a place like this. No, goodness will abound and expand and overflow forever. In fact, this city is so characterized by peace that it still has walls and it has gates, but these gates are never shut. The new Jerusalem is always open 
and always safe, and it will never be overthrown. And that's the city I want to visit. And one day I will. And I, I think about this all the time. You know, out of all the culture and the sports and the, the fun things I'm, I'm sure there will be to see, honestly, I just want to find the best coffee shop. <laughs> also, I want to find a place that serves mac and cheese. Really good mac and cheese. Because heavenly mac and cheese is already a redundant phrase here on earth now. So I can't imagine what it's going to taste like there. And that place will never be overthrown. So what we see also is this, this peace extends to our relationship with creation. In Isaiah 11, 6 to 9, it says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So even a snake's den will be no danger to the hand of a child on the new earth. Isaiah 65, 25, another verse talks similarly. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Again, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The animals are no longer killing one another. And the Lord declares again that we will not hurt or destroy anything anywhere ever again. That's the picture we see here is creation at rest. There's peace on earth. So this last section, he goes on in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. He says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God will be but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So at the end here, we, again, we see this river of life, and on either side of it, the tree of life. The Garden of Eden is restored, and it's made into a garden city. But it's interesting, because what tree don't we see? We don't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's conspicuously absent. See, that tree represented a choice for humanity. Just like the cross represents a choice for us. The, all of us actually have the same decision to make as Adam and Eve. A decision before a tree. And we see here that what awaits those who have trusted in Jesus, that one day we will see the very face of God. The face of the one who made you. Who knit you together. And there is nothing that can ever divide us again. Nothing is going to ever mess this thing up. And all of this 
is made possible through Jesus. So doing this series on heaven right after Easter, it just makes sense. Because it's his victory over death in which we're invited to participate that makes all of this possible. Uh, Try said in week one, heaven is not our default destination. We aren't just automatically going to go to this place. See, our rebellion, our sin, it requires judgment by a holy God. But in his infinite kindness and mercy, he sent his son to be the payment on our behalf. This is the good news of the ages. So we can either choose to reject that or accept that, receive that gift of salvation of eternal life. And for those who do, I hope that you see what's in store is exciting. See, we will reign forever with God here on this new earth in the midst of a new heavens. I said this earlier, and I'll say it again. The way we live now is completely controlled by what we believe about death. And for me, in my experience, there have been two huge takeaways from meditating on this hope of heaven. See, first, it encourages me to invest my life into eternal things. See, life here is just a dot. And what extends out of this dot is a timeline, a line that will go on forever. So it's foolish of me when I care more about this little dot than I do that line. And I think the the interesting thing, the, the paradox of God's generosity, is actually when I do invest in that line, that actually I experience the most joy now anyway. That's God's economy. And you know what? One of the most important eternal things is people. Whether we live in the New Jerusalem or not, as believers, we are going to be around one another forever on earth in eternal community. Reliant K has has a great song. It's called Failure to Excommunicate. And the chorus of that song goes, as long as there's a heaven there will be a failure to excommunicate. So in these guys who sing about Sadie Hawkins' dance in their khaki pants are also singing about this really massive reality. We are going to live in unity for eternity. And by having an eternal perspective now, we get a chance to start living like that here, where our unity can be a testimony to encourage others and ultimately to expand God's kingdom. I know it's a lot easier said than done. But division within the body of Christ goes completely against what Jesus set out to accomplish. And recently I read this quote from John Newton in a letter that he wrote on controversy. I think sums this up really well. He says this, The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever." anticipating living together in heaven on a new earth. It doesn't mean we just avoid conflict. I actually think it helps us address conflict even more because we have this unshakable thing which unites us. So we can process and deal with real issues always with the end goal of unity in mind. 
So let's be people who invest our lives deeply into one another because we are all eternal beings. And the second big takeaway I've experienced is that a deeply rooted hope in heaven allows me to more fully grieve my losses. See, as a culture, I think we've adopted a little bit of this perspective that healing comes through mindlessness. You know, we just have to keep our minds busy and distracted and healing will occur in the background or or something. I don't know. But for me, the, the hope of heaven, of living on a new earth one day in my flesh, has been an anchor to me through waves of grief and sorrow. And when I have an anchor to cling to, I find that I can, I can let those waves wash over me, and they can batter me and knock me every sort of way. See, even today, right now, as I'm talking about this, I'm really excited about what's to come. I'm also very sad. See, today is the, the second Mother's Day that my wife Callie has spent with our three kids in heaven. And I'm thrilled that they can be together. But I miss them. And I long to see her and meet them. Hope does not remove pain. Hope allows us to more deeply fill our sorrows, which is actually how healing comes. See, grief is necessary, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I'm so thankful for that. So the way we think about and discuss heaven matters. The words we use, they matter. We are living in this in-between, the already and the not yet Jesus has overcome death, and yet we wait, groaning with creation for redemption to be made complete. Faith is not just a state of mind that we get into. Faith is active. Our behavior reveals the truth about what we believe. So let's be like the people of faith who are listed in Hebrews 11, where their faith says their action was inspired by their desire for a heavenly country. It says of Abraham that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They were looking forward to the city, and that changed the way that they lived. And they didn't fully see it yet. They were looking at these things from afar, and they're still waiting for that, just as we are. But it's coming. So we can begin living that out here and now because Jesus offers us eternal life now, not just eternal existence. See, that word life incorporates things like fullness and flourishing and abundance and overflowing. And we can do that. We can live that way because we have this unshakable hope. As believers, these years will be the worst of your entire existence the absolute best moment that you can think of, the apex of it all, the most exhilarating instance will not be better than the most ordinary moment on the new earth. For those who have rejected the cross or rejected Jesus, these years will be the best. But if you're in Christ, what's to come is better in every way. It's gain. We sang that song, Graves into Gardens, and 
God is literally going to turn graves into gardens here on earth. So with that perspective, when we do enjoy life here, that's just a foretaste of what we'll do forever, unhindered by sin and evil and death on a redeemed, resurrected new earth. And we get to do that together. I cannot wait. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for overcoming death, Lord, for doing everything that we needed you to do or that this future would be secure or that we could look forward to eternity with you, eternity with one another, fellow creation, and our creator, or that we will one day look upon you face to face. Lord, thank you for, thank you for that hope. Lord, would you help us to cling to it, Lord? Would you help us to fix our eyes and our minds upon this? Would you teach us more? Would you impress it upon our minds and our hearts, Lord, when it changed the way that we live? Lord, would we be people who invest into eternity, into one another, and into, um, Lord, facing, Lord, the hard things that are here on earth with hope. And Lord, ultimately, we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that you would receive all the glory through us as we await the full redemption of your creation. We pray all these things to you in Jesus' name.